The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you longing for a place where hope, ideas, and new ways of thinking can arise? For nearly 50 years, Omega Institute's campus in Rhinebeck, New York, has been a gathering place where world-class teachers provide innovative educational experiences that cultivate extraordinary potential in us all. Join us either on campus or online. To learn more, visit eomega.org. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Spirit Matters podcast, where we have conversations with wise and interesting people who can help you along in your own spiritual journey. Uh, I invite you, if you're new to the podcast, to look at the archive. We've recorded, I suppose, at least 20 interviews since we started in uh, early 2023. And also go to the uh, archive of 300 or so interviews I from my previous podcast, uh, which you'll you can find at spiritmatterstalk.com. Um, in any event, today's uh, interview is with another wise and interesting person. Christina Donnell is a uh, clinical psychologist, a spiritual teacher, public speaker, and uh, award-winning writer who's Works include Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential, and more recently, Encounters with Living Language, Surrendering to the Power of Words, which we'll talk about. And uh, she has audio series such as uh, The Global Heart, Living the Unitive Life, and Deep Seeing. She has studied Eastern spiritual traditions and the shamanic practices of an indigenous culture in Peru for three decades and devotes herself to, quote, bringing unity consciousness alive through the winds of change association and other endeavors. Welcome, Christina. Good morning, Phil. And thank you for having me on your show. And Thank you for sowing seeds of consciousness in our world. It's my dharma. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> um, 
Christina, let's begin, as I always like to, uh, by filling in our listeners who are not familiar with you about your own spiritual journey. What would, What's your spiritual origin story, if mm. you uh, can sum it up for us? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I grew up in a, a family where there wasn't spirituality or religion, per se. And yet, I was born into the world with very pragmatic, but with a mystical temperament. So I'd say my origin, although I didn't know it at the time, was in 1968. <laughs> I'm familiar with that year. 1968, <laughs> the civil rights movement. And I lived in Detroit. And mm. my father was a cop. Oh. And it was during the time of the Detroit riots. Mm. And I recall being six years old, holding my mother's hands in a private parking lot while the police force were putting on their riot gear and the wives were there to say goodbye. And I could just feel the palpable anxiety. And then I went home that night and went to bed and although I didn't know at the time I was a lucid dreamer, which, which I call now a transcendent dreamer, but I had a dream where I was sitting on an African-American woman's lap, full-bodied African-American woman, and she was singing spirituals. Wow. And during that dream, at six years old, the, the African-American spirituals just simply transported my awareness and my consciousness and I be I became the spirituals themselves and starting first grade when you're learning penmanship we had to write a six-page book and my six-page book was devoted to African-American spirituals wow. of which both my teachers and my parents wondered where had I received this information from you and saw that, Mahalia Jackson on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, yeah there we go. There we go. <laughs> Probably way past my bedtime at that yeah. age. <clears throat> but that was the beginning and it, it never ended. It it was I didn't even know it to be spiritual. Um but that transcendent dreaming at night continued, which really was my spiritual sustenance and nourishment. And has been throughout my entire life. We'll talk about dreaming in a bit, but um, you then went on to become a clinical psychologist. Yes. And I'm curious about the chronology because you also talk about studying uh, Eastern and Indigenous spiritual traditions. Did you start that? Uh, independent study as a clinical psychologist? Was it simultaneous with your training? Did it precede your training? Mm -hmm. What was Because uh, that link between the spiritual search and <clears throat> uh, immersion in, in psychology is of interest. Yes, yes, the temple of the mind. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I... I I received my PhD at the age of 24. So I was on just this accelerated at the Chicago Medical School uh, 
fast track with a great mentor who ended up at Harvard. Received my degree very young, practicing, and all, I always have had an interest in human behavior. I love human souls. I love the human soul. I love sitting with souls. But in the 19, early 1990s, when managed care came along and it became assembly line therapy and medical necessity, I felt as though psychology wasn't addressing the psyche or the spirit. And that is when my endeavoring to find other ways that felt more rooted in the spirit began. And I started with actually being a martial artist. I, I've been an elite athlete my entire life. So martial arts became in my early, late 20s, early 30s, a path into Zen meditation uh. and and really understanding the energy world and the unseen into the manifest world through the body. And then also at the same time, I started traveling. I quit my job at the medical center here. At the time it was St. Paul Ramsey Medical Center. And I just started traveling to see how other peoples in our world sit with a human soul. And that is what brought me to the high Andes. So those when, happened simultaneously. When you were with, uh, when you were uh, practicing psychologists, yes, uh, you, you mentioned managed care. Was that um, did that mean uh, less one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, therapy uh, and more uh, writing prescriptions? Because uh, I've heard a lot of people lament that uh, change. Yeah, yes. It, it became a time where medicine was corporatized. And mm. so you needed to see more people in a less amount of time. Right. And it all was based on diagnosis and medical necessity. And it it was like eating styrofoam as a as a therapist <laughs> and someone who likes to sit with us with a spirit. Yeah, yeah. And I knew it was the beginning of corporate medicine and that I did not want to be a part of it. And I continue to practice, but more as a spiritual director than a clinical psychologist, although physicians refer regularly to me. Tell me about, um, since you, you, you raised it, um, your travels uh, in, in the Andes. Uh, I've been to Peru. Um, but your immersion in a uh, culture whose name I'd never even heard yes. and their shamanic practices is fascinating. And so I, uh, please tell us about that and what you learned from it that informs your work. To give a preview of how I think the unmediated experience with the divine happens. I had a dream in 1991. I was actually a martial artist. I was on the national team, the US national team as a martial artist. And, but I had a dream and I had a dream that I was at Heathrow airport sitting with three men and one woman. And they asked me to bring this large, very large six feet by two feet box back to the United States. 
and this is before uh, COVID, of course, and 9-11. And I said, well, I can't even consider that until I see what's inside. And when they opened it up, it was a mummy that ha was had all of, all of the gold inside of it. And it, one leg crossed, crossed the other. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. How would I ever bring that back to the United States? And I remember at the time the woman was sitting with her arm in an unusual manner. Again, this is a transcendent dream. So it's, it's lucid where there's high, high, high lucidity. You're kind of coexisting in multiple places at the same time in your awareness. So it was a very, very powerful dream. I didn't know what to do with it, didn't think anything of it. Went to a chiropractor because I was having a low back problem. She said, you know what, you might want to go to this workshop because they work with how the, uh, the unseen energy within the body um, can be moved through imprints. And it happened that I went to one, which was Alberto Violdo at the time. After that, I thought, well, maybe I will go to the Andes because that was where he had been traveling. And shortly thereafter, did go to the Andes, never connecting the dream as an Incan mummy to the Caro people that I ended up being with for 30 years and also teaching some of their Andean ways. And the Carroll people live between 18 and 22,000 feet. Base camp for Mount Everest is 14,000 feet. So it gives mm -hmm. you an idea of how monastic they really are on the planet. There are five villages and 600 remaining Carroll. But what you say, Kara, can you spell that for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, it's a Q apostrophe, E-R-O, Carol, often thought descendants of the Inca or the scribes. I was going to ask about the relationship to the Incas and Machu Picchu. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, it's it's controversial whether they're descendants or scribes. Um, but in my immersion there, what... I found extraordinary and probably home because of transcendent dreaming is that they are people who don't live in linear time. They don't know past or future. They don't talk about what just happened. They don't talk about anything in the future. They live in a time I would call polysynchronous hmm. where the past, present and future are happening simultaneously. And they are also people who are not identified by a me cosmology meaning a, a self-reference of an I, they are we people. So, and at 18 to 22,000 feet, you're above the tree line. There's nothing up there. It's a meditative space. Only potatoes grow up there and alpaca herds. That's how they survive. And eating alpaca and potatoes. And potatoes and potatoes. Wow. Now, the, the medicine people will come down off the mountain to go to the Amazon and get medicinals. Uh -huh. But really, that's all there is. It, it's, you're at high, high elevation. But what's extraordinary about them, and their language is more like Sanskrit. So the, your, the words 
are very connected to the larger continuum and the whole, but they they are completely a sensory moving in, in present time from a sensory experience. So they know where they are in the mountains by the feel of the mountain, not by the name of the mountain. Mm. And so just to be with them, and the book talks about my time with them, you're, you're really sitting with a, a prototype of consciousness and people who are dying out that maybe are, were here to show us something different. And, and what did you learn from them? And you, you say, uh, I assume when you say you were uh, with them for 30 years, that means numerous trips of... Uh, numerous trips and in my book i talk about i had a lover there i have i had a godson there both uh, of them died my lover died from a lightning strike and my godson died which is in the book and the pilgrimage to it from exposure with a, a spring squall of cold winter coming in wow. so i was intimately involved i also brought students there for a number of years to experience the culture. So I was was deeply immersed and I was deeply immersed because they truly, they live in unity consciousness. They are at a felt sense and oneness with that larger continuum. The medicine peoples in ceremony call in the lightning strikes and they don't do it from a place of what we would call power over. They do it from a place of a beloved relationship and a communion, which is something in our culture we don't understand. How did uh, your time with them and and what you learned about their spirituality inform your subsequent work here in uh, the material, (laughs) the materialistic culture of of America? Uh, yes, in our materialistic, maybe even colonized culture. Um, it did in many ways. You know, it's it did in many ways. Of all of my travels worldwide, there are people with such innocence and purity of heart. Purity of heart. They don't even believe evil exists. Hmm. They believe evil is a result of not being in right relationship to time. Hmm. That if you are in a past, present, and future, the past will taint the present moment and bring that into it. And so that in their in their mind, evil is a distorted relationship to time. They're, they're so innocent and so pure. That is what I brought back. That is what I wanted to teach. And it was very consistent with at six years old, having dreams where I'm transported into that unity consciousness. In the in the Carol tradition, it's called Munye, M-U-N-A-Y, Munye, dissolving the I into the one. Hmm. In... Um... In the material I read, you mentioned having had a near-death experience in Peru uh, with uh, having contacted yellow fever. Um, Near-death experiences have been studied 
to some degree here in the West. Uh, I know there's a lot of skepticism about them. There's a lot uh, that we can learn from them. Uh, tell us about yours and and the impact, if it had, if any, that it had on your own uh, spirituality and your work. <laughs> Well, it definitely had an impact because this book wouldn't be here had that experience not happened. Yes. So I was in the Andes in 2012 after my partner in the Andes had died three months earlier. And there, because my godson was lost hurting alpaca. And I was there to help find parental rights for him. And I contracted yellow fever. So in high altitude, with a fever of 106, I really, I could have cared less whether I lived another day. And I had an experience where my awareness was was lifted onto that threshold. And I could talk more about this because... I've done work with people in in medical centers who are in life support to help family determine where they are at on that threshold of leaving or returning. I had already had 10 years of experience there. So when I hit that threshold, I talk about that threshold in Transcendent Dreaming, just having a natural proclivity to be present and coexist with someone in that space. And I talk about it in Transcendent Dreaming as I felt as though it were training because it's in, it was every single time intoxicating. And yet being on that threshold is this push-pull between a couple of worlds. And I had that experience with my yellow fever. And as I felt that intoxication that comes with leaving the body. And I gladly would have left my body at that moment because of the intoxication. I heard, so what do you call that? Clara audience, I heard, I am the original light behind the word. Mm. It is now time for you to do your work. Be the mouthpiece for language of which I didn't understand at all at that time. And I don't know if I really understand it now, but I came completely plummeting down like a deer goes through a frozen pond that deep back into my body and here in this world. And it took another six days before I could stand and was well enough to be on horseback, to be guided down the mountain to get back to the United States. That was my near-death experience. And I was left with this, I am the light behind the word of which meant nothing to me at that time. And I talked to you before about the dream I had with the Incan mummy and the woman, that woman, ended up 14 years later being 
my editor <laughs> for Transcended Dreaming. She's also the editor for this book as well. So again, you start to see the unseen world and the connections that are invisible, you know, unless someone is having expanded states of awareness. And having had that near-death experience, as you know, I then had 92 illuminations, not dreams, awake illuminations that around language and the experience of language and where it can bring us to unity consciousness. Now, let's say it again. Shortly thereafter. So, so if that was, yeah, 2012, yeah, 2012 to 2015, I had 92 illuminations that were all occasioned by language. So, auto, again, what, we call it so many things. If you have a mis mystical temperament, it just comes in and you absorb it. But I, but I had 92 of them and they definitely had a governing aim. They were, they were training my entire somatic sensory system to experience the word, the beginning, in the beginning was the word. They, it, they were training my system to experience the thousand roots of the unseen underneath each word to bring us back the silence from which it arises and returns and into the oneness underlying all of life. And the book is about the, that experience through the word, not through religion or spirituality per se, through the word, through the actual written and spoken word. I'm fascinated. Let's, let's uh, shift then to... Uh... We maybe we'll come back to transcendent dreaming, but I want since you brought us to encounters with living language, uh, and I traffic in language professionally uh, all my life. Uh, Don't we all? Don't we all? Well, yes, but um, some of us put it in writing <laughs> and, <laughs> and spend inordinate amounts of times working with words yes labor of love yes and um so i'm fascinated but first of all i mean one thing that fascinates me is that you counted them you had 92 how did you manage i mean where did you manage to keep track yes and beyond the fact that you know how many uh during this what eight year period um questions about them were they spontaneous or were they induced by some methodology or techniques two um were they each different significantly different yes. and yet you know they had certain things in common for you to group them in a what a mathematician would call a set. Yes. <laughs> so uh, those questions for you tell tell us about them. Yes, yes. The reason why I can say ninety two is because after my first five, I'm 
was like, this is strange. This is no longer dreaming. This is happening in my waking day. I will answer your question. They are spontaneous. They come out of nowhere. They can, they are absolutely inconvenient mm. in a pragmatic world. They're, it's not what you expect. The only thing I could say they might have in common is that I was sitting in a moment where my conceptual mind had receded, which then allowed me to have the illumination of the experience. But you weren't looking for them. You weren't absolutely. attempting to bring them in. Absolutely was not looking for them. They're they're startling every time they come and they're transporting and they shift. It feels like even at the atom level of your body, you're being transported. So they're, they, were, they were definitely mystical experiences. The reason why I know 92, I knew after five to archive them. And what I did was every time I had one, my editor, Ellen Kleiner, of whom I spoke about, who was in that original Transcendent Dream, we had already done Transcendent Dreaming as a book. And I said, these are unusual. Can I just send them off to you? I'll bullet what happened. And can we just archive them so I don't lose them? Because every single one of them, the conceptual mind receded and they made no sense from the mind. And she said, yes. And so that's what I did. Every time I had one, I would just send off what happened and bullet it. And it wasn't until that archive was complete, several years after it was complete, I said, okay, I think I could write a book about these illuminations occasioned by language given to me from the unseen world that says that's why you are here. You date these 92 from 97 to 2015. Yes. 1997, 2015. They stopped? Did you? Oh. Oh, did they, yes. they stopped. Did, did you want them to stop? Did you say, thank you very much, I don't want this anymore? Or did it just happen to stop? It's that I want it's this is a wonderful question. And I would say the first illumination I had was in 1997. And then I never had one again until 2012. And then I had 92 from 2012 to 2015. So why that that gap, right? 97 to 2012. 2012. I was in Montana with a Lakota medicine woman and her partner who was a medicine man had died. We were in ceremony. We had been out in for a week under the skies of Montana. I returned and that was the week that Mother Teresa died mm -hmm. and Princess Diana died. But we had no idea because we were out in the bush, so to speak. And I decided there was going to be a 
the ceremony really for Mother Teresa at one of the local churches. And I said, we're here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and sit in the back of the church and listen. I did. And came out of there after this tribute to Mother Teresa and saw one of the small altar boys at a tree. And when I, I didn't, I actually wouldn't have even approached him, but he said to me, looked up at me and said, what is, what did you like about Mother Teresa? And I looked him in the eye and I said, I liked that she knew what was right in the world. And I knew in the moment I said it to him, that is not what I think about Mother Teresa. <laughs> I could have said anything else, but that is what came out of my mouth. And in that exchange, all of a sudden, the awareness expanded. We both were absolutely fixated on one another. I noticed in what I said to him, like, I loved what she knew was right in the world that the struts and the fibers of the words started falling away into something else. My awareness expanded and I knew in that moment that he was being abused by the priest along with other boys. Hmm. So unmediated experience with the divine through the word where you get direct knowing. And of course, three weeks later, it came out as his parents were one of many that that was that was occurring that was in 1997 i didn't have another one until 2012 after my near-death experience and i think well i should leave it up to people who make meaning in the world because the divine is a mystery and i really like the mystery remaining but i think Lifelong transcendent dreaming just developed into awake, awake illumination. And when you ask me if it continues, it does. But here's the beautiful thing. It's now integrated in my body. So it's not... It, 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 so it's an, experience, an expanded experience in the moment where I'm still deeply grounded versus a vision that kind of takes you out of your body and it takes a number of hours to kind of return into that pragmatic functional place. So I would, now I can say, well, I have a leg in both worlds, the pragmatic as well as the unseen that is trying to manifest into our world. And I think my the cellular body can hold that now. So it sounds like um, when you were having these ninety two, um, they were kind of disruptive. They they may have interfered with your functioning in the uh, material world and uh, whatever you were doing at the time. Uh, and um, so uh, I have a lot of questions, but one of them is. What would your uh, former colleagues in the world of clinical psychology say if you were to tell them 
I've, I have these experiences. Or if you didn't know what you knew and said, oh, this is crazy, I need help, and went to one of them, would you be on medication now instead? Of... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like, that's it. No, it's a wonder. It's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful question. And I think this is what's important to say is what was so transporting and I think was some sort of training for someone like myself who who is really quite pragmatic what was the hardest Phil was to lose my conceptual mind the ability for the conceptual mind to truly recede right M meditating everyone wants that experience where it recedes but they expect for it to come back online Right. And for it to not come online and then to move from that place and be in an unmediated experience with the divine and in unity consciousness, not from the mind, but in the body is a different experience. And it, it took time. It took time to, for it to settle out so I could walk in both worlds. My colleagues, mm, I'm very careful. I'm sure. Very, <laughs> very careful. And I have a physician who has referred to me for years, including to medical centers, to track people who are on life support, whom says, Christina, I, I need to pick up your books. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not, not moving there. So there is this dance between our everyday world, pragmatism, and who and to what degree can they receive information about how the unseen becomes manifest in our world. And I'm very careful. I'm judicious. You would have to be. Um, let's talk about encounters with living language. You 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 said um, that these uh, ninety two uh, illuminations um, were precipitated by language. I think yes. you used the word precipitated or yes. something. Yes. Um, tell what what does that mean? And because uh, we're using language all the time, and yet. Uh, something extraordinary happened to you at least 92 times and presumably others. Um, what do you mean by living language? Mm -hmm. And um, what is the relationship between living language and these illuminative experiences that you have? Yes. Let's start with the, what I consider the meaning of living language because we do know it exists. You know, the Bible is living language for many. There are so many texts, historical texts that are living language. I consider living language when we, whether it's the spoken or the written word, we feel transported by that sentence. We feel the hair rise on our, on our neck. We feel, we read a line and we go, oh, I'm slayed by that. 
meaning it got behind the conceptual mind into the senses, the sensory somatic system of the body to have a felt experience. And I, I go back to, and I reference it in the book, Maharishi, who talks about the word, the word, any word, any language, any word, that it's only when someone, yes, has the knowledge of the word, but also has the experience of the word, experience, right? Experience of the word, moving beyond, beyond just conceptualizing, the experience of the word, that then they will know that it returns to the unboundedness, the unboundedness, the oneness underlying all of creation. And he said, unless someone has an experience with the word, they will never know that connection, which goes deeper and deeper, connected, connected, more connected, subtle, transcendent. And then he says, inert, the word is inert, and now, now it is alive. And it was actual Michael, Michael Spite sent me that audio, which helped me understand, oh, these 92 illuminations were leading to there. All right, there's a lot to unpack. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, it's important. You know, this is why you're here, you know, to talk about this book and what and what listeners can derive from your experiences, which on first glance would be, you know, uh, just somebody talking about extraordinary experiences that uh, have no um, connection to <clears throat> other people's lives. But yes. Um, but we all have encounters with language. Yes. So here's the question, or one of many. Um, the variables in whether uh, engagement with language has a uh, has the has an impact on the person. Yes. Doing reading or listening to language there are many variables one is what's the language so when um you know i spent a lot of time with maharishi mahesh yogi and you know one of the things he would uh, we learned in this context was language is like sanskrit and maybe hebrew it's original languages that uh, there was a correspondence in, in Sanskrit, it's called Nama Rupa, between name and form. Mm, and, beautiful, beautiful. And um, so the form of the object that we, that are named by people of higher consciousness, the, the, there's something in the uh, vibration of the language of Sanskrit or something that contains the form yes it's you know so is there a difference reading you know english 
which is, you know, this hybrid of multiple influences. And original languages or hearing Sanskrit or Hebrew or Aramaic uh, chanted or spoken, is there a difference? Yes, yes. And of course, this is a question for a linguist to answer. But what I do recall in listening to the two audios that Michael sent me, one of the participants asked, are you speaking about any language or are you speaking about Sanskrit? I said, no, 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 any language. Interesting. Any language, of which I thought was interesting because I think the English language is really quite far removed vibrationally and frequency-wise from the larger continuum. You know, Sanskrit, even Quechua, Carol, mm -hmm. of my 30 years, is much closer. But he said, no, 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 any language. Interesting. And having a near-death experience, not understanding why I might be tasked with understanding the living light behind the word, it makes me ponder, Phil. It makes me ponder. Language, of course, is in its own evolution, its own movement. We think it's static and it's just representing, mm -hmm. but it's not static. It's in its own evolution. And I wonder if this message is a part of the evolution of language itself. And the mm -hmm. reason why I say that, I look at our neurodivergent, our Asperger's autism spectrum, the young adults who are have been nonverbal their entire life through a technique called letterboarding are now speaking. And when they now speak, for having been nonverbal their entire life, they are telepathic. They know six languages their parents never taught them. Mm -hmm. They are speaking from a place that I think is a prototype of the future. And of course, what we know about evolution, if you believe in evolution, is that, yeah, these mutations early on are not adaptive in the culture. They're, they simply aren't adaptive. But as these techniques come forward and we see their, their and I've, I've received three or four letters from these non-speakers and they are extraordinary. They're, they are like, Christina, I am here to be the space between the space of people and to vibrate, help vibrate where they are living. That's why I'm here. That's my vocation. That's who I am. I'm like, wow. Wow, that is not anything we know or understand. What do you mean by the uh, intrinsic energy of language? That if we are able in the spoken or written word or with a loved one to not be in our rational mind, just like meditation, and when you're in the silence and you're having an unmediated experience because the mind is quiet, 
the language can move into us. And that language, every word, there are a thousand roots into the invisible where there are archetypal forces exist behind the word and are connected to the unitive whole. That is what language has the capacity to offer us. And I think I might be here to say it's really early <laughs> in our dualistic, dualistic world. But I'm also here to say it doesn't require years of meditation. My goodness, language can bring us here. Language alone. Are we more likely to be brought there by language? Well, I already asked the question of does the uh, actual language matter? Um, are we more likely to have a uh, transcendent or mystical experience mediated by language or precipitated by language? Uh, depending on who's transmitting the language, who's speaking it, who's Beautiful writing question. it. I read Walt Whitman, yes. and it's very different from reading, you know, a newspaper article. Yes. So does poetry, does song, language, you know, in with music, uh, does chanting, traditional chanting in you know different um, uh, spiritual traditions do they carry something some that makes the transmission of this energy more likely yes 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 oh. resounding yes i have emerson in my you know i go to the grove of the glen to fetch his word to men um you know, we both could have so many poetic sentences that open us and allow. And when someone speaks the language from a place where they are absolutely in the transmitting the archetypal root of the word it will have a different impact on the listener mm -hmm. and I, I I speak about that in the book I was at Icing right the subtle energy medicine conference uh, doing a keynote and did a keynote um, what it means to be human. 40 minutes later, the audience is dead quiet. And then there's a 20 or 30 minute where people come up to the mic and every single person said, I can't remember a word you said, but this is where I was transported to. And that was 2017. So I had these illuminations, 2012, 2015. That was evidence to me that whatever that shift or change 
that was unfolding, transformation unfolding, that it was coming through in the spoken word in an audience of 500 who, and all, I have three spiritual communities, San Francisco, Seattle, and Minneapolis, every single one of them, all my audios, they say, I can't remember a word you said. And I go back and I swear you said something different. So the transmission from a deeper level creates an exchange in consciousness that expands beyond our pragmatic conceptual world. Um, when I'm exposed to uh, chanting, yes, uh, whether it's in a church, a synagogue, or a, a temple, or a ashram in India, which is you know my chief experience with this yes it it i have a deeper experience if i don't know what the what's being if the meaning of what's being chanted yes yes um which i'm not catholic i you know <laughs> this is the furthest thing from me but when people complain that Latin is no longer used in church services. I kind of, oh. I get it. <laughs> and I think I, you know, cause I had the experience, you know, early in my life in Europe of just saying, Hey, there's a church. It's Sunday. I'll go. I didn't yeah. understand the language. I just felt something. Yeah. Same, same when I'm hearing, uh, you know, Sanskrit being chanted in a, you know, ritual in India. I don't know the meaning. And when I do know the meaning, it alters my experience. Oh, you just said it beautifully. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So is that what you're kind of referring to? Oh, you you said it beautifully. And, you know, I'm often asked, well, this is wonderful, but how do you get here? Right. And I'm like, well, I don't do how do. Don't know how you get here. And you are speaking to exactly We have used language to conceptualize and make immediate meaning meaning from the mind for centuries. That is what we know. And it's only through chanting, it's only through meditation, where that mind quiets and recedes, that one can have an unmediated experience in a different way. And I don't know how else to say that, but there, but could we do more of that? Could we as human beings who are spiritually seeking do more of that? Because when we are transported there, we become connected to something greater. And I think that could be a new threshold for tomorrow. It's why I'm on the planet. I think it's why you are on the planet too. Um. I'm just going to mention this experience. Um, As I said, you know, I'm I'm not Catholic, I'm not Christian, but I grew up in this culture, so I know the words to the Lord's Prayer. I've heard it a million times. Somebody played a recording without telling me what it was. Oh, I got chills. Of the Lord's Prayer being recited 
in the original Aramaic. Yeah, I, I said, I "Oh, that's that. so beautiful! What is that?" And it turns out that's the Lord's Prayer, which leads me to think that um, some of what we read in sacred literature, like if 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 you read certain um, a text translated from Sanskrit to English, or certain Buddhist texts translated from the Pali. Yes. You say, why is it they repeat themselves so much? And then you realize perhaps in the original language, it was an incantation. Oh, I love it. Yes, and yes. Do you, yeah. I absolutely agree. I absolutely <clears throat> agree. And in poetry, why yeah. is there a repeat of a line? It's take someone deeper into the sensory experience. And yeah. yet, and yet, meaning matters so um there's also there's listen there's absorbing sound but then there's a a different kind of what learning illumination that comes from the meaning of of it when you know the meaning of it like you know you you and i talking right now if if we were talking to one another in two languages we might have an interesting experience <laughs> but uh do you know what i mean it's i yeah. mentioned whitman before and um i'm i'm working on a, a something where i quoted him and it, when you read song of myself and i recommend to our listeners you know just read it and just get into the rhythm of it and the the rhythm right rhythm and the, and incantation yeah yeah and and it's you know so alive but then there's the meaning and you know i've there's a line in in whitman where he, he says something like uh I, you say you're um uh if you're lucky to be alive well i say you're lucky to die also and i know this from my experience this is paraphrasing and then he says and i know i am not contained between my hat and my boots (laughs) that is a great line yes and i've always line i've quoted it many times i i love it it says so much but it says so much not just because of the rhythm of the context, but because of what it means. What it means and what it means allows the con- the awareness to be transported. Yeah. And that's, I come back to Maharishi who said both the knowledge and the experience of the word. Right. So, you know, going forward, for people to have a surround sound experience, whether you're talking to someone in the grocery store or your loved one, is this development of not only the mind, but also the sensory experience underneath what you're receiving. And I think in our capitalistic, pragmatic world, we've been cut off from that. And yet, there is a threshold of a new tomorrow that might bring us here because language too is evolving. We only have a couple of minutes left. Um, 
because I've been a professional writer so long, and I, um, in the world of self-publishing now, where uh, unfortunately a lot of things are published without the help of ed- good editors, maybe yes. uh, you could start a training program for editors too. <laughs> so, so what you're talking about is incorporated into the you know future books. Oh, right, right, yes. <laughs> well, at first, the editor must love living language, right? Yeah. Um, so in the short time we have left, two questions. <clears throat> what succinctly would you uh, tell our listeners so they may have their own encounters with living language? And tell us about your organization, Winds of Change. Yes. What I would say succinctly for all who are listening, might you take a moment, especially with your loved one, and listen to what they are saying deeply and fully, opening up all of your senses without moving to your mind of what you think is what they are saying. That would be the beginning of having an experience with the word. And why not do it with someone you love? And best way to reach us here at the Winds of Change Association is ChristinaDenell.com. And if you go on to our either Instagram or Facebook, Facebook. We do weekly Sundays with Christina poetry readings. Uh, and we update, of course, including we'll be updating and linking to to your interview, Phil. So it's the best way to keep abreast. Very good. <laughs> Christina, thanks so much for being with us. Um, it's been illuminating. And um, I encourage our listeners to uh, keep in mind everything uh, Christina said. As you listen, go back and listen to this again with different ears, having heard (laughs) what Christina has to say about the possibilities of having encounters with living language. The title of her book, uh, her organization, Winds of Change. And uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Um, I would remind you uh, that you can subscribe to this podcast so you'll be informed of each new uh, episode. And uh, please tell your friends. Go to my website, philipgoldberg.com, to find out all other things that I do and what I'm up to, my books and all that. But also, you can email me from there and tell me uh, your suggestions for how we can do this better or people you think I should interview. Thank you again. Thank you again, Christina. And we'll see you next time.
What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation Podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.